This episode of the History Replay Today podcast is brought to you by River City Segs, the only Segway tour company in Virginia with an indoor Segway-specific training area. Find out more information at rivercitysegs.com, Facebook, Twitter at 804segs. Always practice safe segs. This is the History Replaced Today podcast. My name is Jeff Major. I am very excited to say that I am posting the first full-length episode of the History Replaced Today podcast. It's a Richmond history podcast, and I have Harry Kolatz, conversation with him on the show today. And the amount of uh, learning and technical difficulties that I did have to overcome in order to um, get this thing up, uh, holy smokes, holy smokes, while trying to live life at the same time. So... If you're actually listening to this, then that means that there are there is success, at least moderate success, overcoming technical difficulties. I think we're in good shape on this. Um, let me know what you think, though, because this is uh, you know just starting out doing this. So let me know on on uh, Facebook, History Replays today. Also check out at uh, History Replays on Twitter. Don't forget to check out historyreplaystoday.com. That's uh, the the Richmond history blog I've been writing for quite a, for for a little while now, and I'm also doing uh, you know historyreplaystoday.org, which is where I'm going to be posting the um, the podcast episodes, um, and I may just go ahead and uh, convert over to that. I don't know. I'll be posting on both, hoping to keep them both up. Um, but yeah, so if you just stumbled upon this and you can't you know don't use Stitcher or iTunes. Um, let me know what other platform you listen to, to podcasts and stuff like this on. Um, but uh, you can go ahead and go to a historyreplaystoday.org and click on the little um, it's a little yellow button. It looks kind of like a, a Wi-Fi signal that you're trying to get. Um, I, I don't know what it looks like. It, it looks kind of like that, whatever. Um, just start clicking on things. Um, eventually, you know, you'll feel like you subscribed. And um, if you get another episode, you'll be in good shape. Because we'll be posting the episodes on the first and the 15th of every month, um, and try and throw together a couple little, um, you know, mini episodes, kind of like I did with Harry's, um, you know, that little, you know, listen to that as well, um, the, the previous one, because uh, that part is not in, that was actually part of the pre-interview, which we hadn't really officially started the discussion yet, so check that out as well. Um, yeah, let me know what you got, what you think's going on. Um, Harry is a you know senior writer of Richmond Magazine, um, very interesting um, writer. He's also written two uh, really good books from uh, excellent books from uh, um, History Press. Um, one is called True Richmond Stories. Um, get that; it's very unique stories about Richmond history that is from one of his columns at Richmond Magazine, um, as well. Richmond in Ragtime. Socialists, suffragists, sex, and murder. Um, that's actually what we talk about uh, on this episode here. And um, uh, he is going to start out with a reading, kind of introduce some of the characters. Uh, I know a lot of the characters you will have recognized, you know, fat folks like Maggie Walker, John Mitchell Jr. Um, you know, the main character, I guess, the, the book revolves around a guy named uh, Aiden Yoder, who uh, Harry pretty much, uh, um, as far as I'm concerned, he introduced him to me. I didn't know anything about him. Um, and so let's go ahead and. Listen to that thing. Here we go. Richmond, Virginia, 1909-1911. You are embarking on a journey into a foreign land called Richmond, Virginia, in 1909-11. While people here may seem familiar, 
their traditions, even their language, are those of a distant place. You are soon to meet the muckraking socialist Aidan A. Yoder and three novelists exploring their craft. Ellen Glasgow, whose fictions go against contemporary Southern Romanticism, James Branch Cabell, whose ultimate desire is to write with perfection about beautiful happenings, and Mary Johnston, whose groundbreaking historical fictions about the Civil War prove provocative. Activists Lila Mead Valentine and Anne Clay Crenshaw, writers Glasgow and Johnston, and artists and partners Adele Clark and Nora Houston are among the women gathering in private salons to discuss securing the vote, as well as other political reforms. You will admire the creativity of Italian-American sculptor and decorative architect Ferruccio Legnoli, whose first public commission is about to be unveiled. And south of the James River, in the city of Manchester, Henry Clay Beatty, Jr., the son of a prosperous merchant, whose upcoming marriage to Louise Owen is compromised at the outset by a flirtigibit named Beulah Benford. The banjo music of pharmacist Polk Miller may entertain you, though he is quite the man of his times. Miller is an unreconstructed confederate who nonetheless relishes the stories and songs he heard from his family's slaves before the war. Miller's passion is the preservation of antebellum music and mirth. He's formed the Old South Quartet, and as a white man playing in a band with blacks, sets a precedent not equaled until rock and roll. While blacks live throughout Richmond, most of them have gathered around the churches, fraternal meeting houses, and businesses of what is called Jackson Ward. Among the prominent residents is the revered community organizer and businesswoman, Maggie Lena Walker, who in 1901 earned the distinction of being the first of her gender or race in the country to be founding president of a financial institution, her St. Luke Penny Savings Bank. Here, too, is John Mitchell, Jr., the tempestuous editor of the weekly Richmond Planet. When younger, Mitchell devoted tremendous energy and time to fighting the epidemic of lynching and false imprisonments. He would strap on a brace of pistols, get on a train, head for the trouble, and write about his experiences. Somehow, he never became a victim of mob violence, no matter how often he courted the possibilities. These days, his time and attention are devoted to his various commercial enterprises. Still, Mitchell's got some fight left in him. It's not enough that Richmond is divided by geography, race, and class. Some younger residents also view their parts of the city as turf to be protected from the abuse of outsiders. They organize as gangs, and when a perceived slight warrants, they battle each other using fists, bricks, and whatever comes to hand, which may on occasion be a knife or a pistol. I think that the, one of the most amazing parts about that is I can't think of the last book, history book that I've read that has that range of class, race, um, you know, the whole experience of, of that time. And I think it's one of the coolest things about, you know, it's not, you know, normally you're at the Civil War, here's some soldiers or here's some generals, you know, and I don't know. Well, to me, the best kind of, of any story, the best kind of history, well, look, why, why are people fascinated with Downton Abbey? Right. It's because you get the upstairs and the downstairs, and the dramatic interplay between those two classes, sometimes they, they don't interact at all, and sometimes they do. Uh, there's transgressions against class, and certainly that was occurring in Richmond as well um, during that time. And you have the added drama of the, the African-American experience uh, uh, brushing up against uh, the, the, the white ruling class, basically. And 
truly my keyhole into this, the real the real backbone of this book is is Aiden Yoder, right. uh, who was a proto blogger, if right. you will. He had his weekly uh, or well as he, he would say it being some sermonettes sermonettes printed when the spirit moves. Um, and he allows me to peer into that period of time in a way that uh, I would not otherwise. Right. Because he's in the streets. You know, he is getting beaten up. He's getting sued. He's getting right. chased by cops and harassed uh, because he names names and doesn't say where his sources are from. Um, and he isn't afraid. He has the courage of his convictions. You read enough of him, he comes across as a bit of a... Of a, of a, of a a nudge, <laughs> as a, you know, as a finger wagger, but you know he's printing the gambling winnings of of council members. Right, right. I mean, right. he he is he is balls to the wall on this stuff, and he 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 gets punished for it. Yeah, he does. Because he gets punished several times, and um, what eventually forces him to leave is not because he's afraid of looking, he's taking the punishment, or taking what's being dished out to him, but because his wife, his young wife, has contracted tuberculosis, and the doctors say, you got to get out of town, you got to get to Catalvo down in Roanoke, or outside of Roanoke, and put her in a, a sanitarium, um, and um, uh, so she can get her health back, which, yeah. she, which she doesn't do. There are definitely a few times when you know, he's the good guy, Yeah. but you're like, dude, like... <laughs> Bro, chill out. Like just like, yeah, that, that wasn't his. That wasn't him. Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> he didn't chill out. There's a there's a great story that I heard much later uh, from a, one of his because uh, he had two families and he lived a long life and he went out to California and started another family. But oh, I think it was Woodrow Wilson uh, Yoder who taught, or maybe it was Siegfried. Uh, anyway, one of them told me about how in Chicago, where he, where he ended up making a great deal of money, the socialist ends up in the advertising business, that he was, uh, I guess, at Wrigley Field, and he went over to Al Capone's box and went to shake his hand. Nice. <laughs> because that's because he could, and he was yeah. Aiden Yoder, and why wouldn't you want to? I think probably with Aiden, he was like, don't you want to shake my hand, Mr. Capone? Right, yeah, You know, absolutely. kind of a thing. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so despite all his, you know, I think uh, his, his uh, saying that he's just a modest uh, man of the people, I think he had a real sincere sense of his own, yeah, yeah, <laughs> his own yeah. rectitude, which makes him sort of unbearable at times. But, I mean, he's up against a bunch of duplicitous hypocrites sure. uh, as well. Not all of them, but, I mean, he's... He's going against the grain of what we, what Richmond wanted to know about itself. The That's machine, the other thing. The machine he was, he was up was, against the machine, the, the machine botched and moving. bunglesome uh, mess of, of the way the city was run in those days. So that's the thing about Richmond, and we complain about our government now, but in Richmond, uh, that prior to that time, or d d during that time, it was there were two. It was a it was a bicameral city government. You had the, the, the Board of Aldermen, and then you had uh, a, a common council, all to, uh, basically 54, 55 white guys right. who basically all knew each other. Um, and whereas, as Aiden pointed out, it wasn't that it was it's like corruption was just part of it was the way they did business. I yeah. mean, it was not seen to be as, it was not viewed as corruption. Right. And this is pretty common throughout not just the South, but many cities throughout the country at this particular time. Sure. I mean, there are huge examples of that, particularly in Chicago, where they had huge machine politics 
um, in New York and earlier with the and, and, and all but just sort of that stereotypical small southern town uh, congenial corruption that goes on that, a lot, that that greases the wheels. But but Aiden was going out and taking pictures of cracking foundations of schools that were brand new, right? Yeah, <laughs> and saying who's and making fun of uh, and, and basically pointing out the poor way the streets were graded and the way the utilities were put in or the, the gas lines were being put in. Uh, he was he was on it, you know. And you have to admit, if if, if he had had a computer and if there had those been those, he would have been a blogger. Right. He'd been right there. He would have been annoying. He um, he would have. But you know, again, you know, where he did get some, and, and he would have probably not made his money in advertising. <laughs> like Huffington Post would have bought him. Instead. Right. He'd be yeah. He'd, yeah that's yeah. what he would be. He'd be the. Uh, the public Yahoo, uh, crank. Yahoo <laughs> pur purchased his blog right. after a certain point. Exactly. But that wasn't in the cards for him. Mostly, I think, because of <coughs> what happened with his wife, about whom I know very little, uh, because she didn't leave any written record behind, and there were no letters that she wrote that, that I've been able to find. I was very fortunate in that I was able to contact Yoder, Yoder family members who actually um, sent me his letters. Oh, wow. Uh, which I quote from in here, yeah. Because I spent a great, I spent too much, probably maybe too much time uh, going back into his background to sort of see what motivated him. Why did he leave Lynchburg, come to Richmond, and and try to clean the place up? Why right. did he feel empowered to do that? And I guess for folks that haven't read the book, like I guess, talk a little bit about that. Like what what is he? Why does he come here? Well, he comes here. Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, um, he either got kicked out or for, or, or what happened was he was sort of promised that by a businessman here, uh, John Atkinson, that since he'd done such a great job in Lynchburg and closing up the saloons and driving out the horse, that uh, and, clean, that, uh, and, and, and cleaning up the corruption, that he could come to Richmond and do the same. Well. John Atkinson was a saloon owner who was having trouble getting his license. So this is a thing which is interesting. Um, there uh, were only a certain number of saloons or taverns that could have licenses to serve alcohol. This was prior to Prohibition, but this is showing us on the slow road. So by restricting licenses, what happened was you had different owners trying to make other owners look bad. Right. Try to get them prevented. It was kind of like Sopranos, but maybe less murderous. But it was just a matter. It was just a matter of embarrassing somebody publicly and getting them fined and getting their license revoked. And at the time, uh, in the old Valentine Mansion, um, called it was called, renamed the Park Hotel. It was like a boutique hotel with a rot skeller in the basement. It was right there on, on Capitol Square, uh, on Bank, um, on Governor and uh, 9th Street. And um, there, uh, Mr. Atkinson, uh, his mother, ran um, the Richmond Hotel, which was right mm -hmm. across the street. And uh, she was quite a successful business person in her own right. And uh, he ran this little hotel, and apparently not very well. And he got in trouble when a young girl came in there with her boyfriends off of the theater row, and they kind of staggered in there, and she got some drinks. And the Capitol Police saw her staggering around, arrested her, and fined the, the park, which already had some strikes against it, and pulled their license. So Mr. Atkinson goes to Aiden Yoder and says, you need to come down here and straighten all that corruption and why these people are picking on me and everything else. And I won't, I won't, uh, I'll, I'll be hands off. I'm just going to give, I'm going to bankroll you and I'll leave you to your own devices. Right. Well, that doesn't work out very well. 
Um, I don't want to give too much of the story away. Sure, sure. But, but I mean, um, the, it, it turns into a own colossal mess, and for Yoder personally. And it embarrasses, publicly embarrasses, a number of prominent Richmonders to the extent that they take out huge lawsuits at the time, the largest lawsuits against a publishing entity in the history of the state at that point. Oh, wow. Uh, and knowing full well that he was poor as a church mouse and could never pay anyway, but they just wanted to show him up and, and, and turn him into a total joke. And in public. Right. They wanted to just drive him out of town. And Aiden Yoder was made of pretty stern stuff. I mean, he did not cut and run. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and some, some, pretty, some pretty ridiculous things that he goes through. And, he and goes keeps through, on fighting. he keeps on fighting them. I mean, having these interrogations at midnight in City Hall, it's just craziness. And he tries to write about it with a certain sense of humor, but you can tell. And he goes through this for three years, from 1909 to 1911. And you can tell that it's starting to wear on him because um, basically after the first big round of trials and 1910, his advertising falls off, and the churchmen who had been supporting him um, basically say, oh, you're just a con artist, basically. I don't think he was a con artist. I think he was a sincere person who had, who just got really overexcited about trying to make a prove a point, and he didn't really care about niceties. Right. Um, he wasn't a bully. He was being bullied. Uh, but but he wanted to, he wanted to tell the truth and and he felt like just because he said it that made it the truth right <laughs> so I mean it's, he sounds like a blogger you know he sounds like a, a, some people running around town now but and he also felt like he could bully them right I mean by publishing this stuff you know especially well, I, like you said getting into the uh, he wanted to show them he wanted to show the public yeah. a, a, a credible you know a believing public this is my truth this is what's really happening this is the stuff that's going on that you talk about in private but you won't say aloud right. And that was the big thing, with, particularly when in, in the summer of 1909 when he hit town. What, what impressed people, what seems to have impressed people, is that uh, he was saying things that didn't get into the Daily Paper. Right. He was an alternative. He was a true um, uh, voice uh, from the people. Um, and it's interesting, too, that he spoke not only of, 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 of white middle-class issues, but also of the, the struggles uh, that were going on in the African-American community. However, he was not liberal to the extent that we would consider him. He was not... He, his father um, was involved in creating the, the, the African-American schools in Lynchburg. And he was a Mennonite. And... Uh, Aiden was accustomed, and him and his brothers were accustomed to having rocks thrown at them and epithets and being called all sorts of names. So they were accustomed to having people react badly to their efforts of trying to make something in the world a little bit better than worse. And um, so when he, he was accustomed to that and had a thick skin, uh, although he himself was kind of prickly. Um, he um, He came to town uh, to right wrongs and make crooked things straight, basically, and and uh, would brook no compromise in doing so. Right. And the, uh, you know, and I think that's a whole interesting thing, you know, not liberal by our standards, but right. I mean, there's like, that's never, never seems to, you know, anyone that's liberal by our standards back then was in an asylum. Well, exactly. you know, <laughs> basically, like, yeah, or, or in Paris, yeah, you know, right. or somewhere in New York, Greenwich Village, I mean, Eugene O'Neill or something, you know, you have to go that far away. Or, yeah, I mean, because Aiden was, um, I mean, although he, he, 
I think partly maybe in reaction to what his father did. I mean, also he was a man of his times. He was essentially a racist. I mean, he would make racist what we would consider racist comments and jokes and the idea. And yet at the same time, he would go to the mat and say, basically, I, I don't believe that we should have, I just believe blacks should have equal treatment before the law. I right. don't consider them equals, but I think they should be treated legally as Right. Just as, as a white person, isn't it? Matter of fact, the, his big problem starts during a court session when two prostitutes are arrested and uh, basically charged with the same um, solicitation charges or, or prostitution uh, accusations. Um, and uh, Sophie Malloy, if I can get this correct now, Sophie Malloy is white, um, and then there's Maggie Lee, who is black. And Sophie gets less of a punishment, and Maggie gets a greater one, and this just torques right. uh, Aiden off. I mean, and he sees Gilbert Pollock, a lawyer at the time, he says, whispering to Judge Justice, Justice John Crutchfield, who's quite a character in the divorce right. of himself, um, Justice John, one John, uh, whispering, saying, oh, you need to let her go. Because uh, one of the things that, that also really annoyed uh, Aiden was the fact that in Shaco, Shock was essentially the, the legal red light district of Richmond. Right. It was right. a trouble spot now. It's a trouble spot then. It's a trouble spot now. And uh, but the problem was they couldn't control prostitution and, and illegal drinking, so they just thought they would just put it in one place where you could easily arrest everybody. Sure. Well, the problem was that none of the properties were owned by city councilmen or people on the police commission. And you'd have police guys running around the alley, swirling their batons and watching these girls with their breasts hanging out of the windows. You know, he gets arrested later <laughs> for you know, publishing obscene literature because he just, he, it's like a walk down Mayo Street, he called it, which is it's a street now that doesn't exist in Chakra because the highway took it out. Right. Uh, but um, it was a walk down Mayo Street. He just described what he saw, all these prostitutes leaning out of windows and against lampposts and the cops not doing anything about it. Right. And he said, look, either enforce the law or make prostitution legal. Right. Choose one. Choose one. Yeah. You can't have both. Right, sure. You're hypocrites. And this got him thrown in jail. This got him sued and thrown in jail. Well, you know, <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, it's a, you know, trouble then, trouble now. Because yeah. I read the book when it came out, and I was, uh, the last couple of days I was just kind of reading through pieces and just trying to re-familiar myself, make sure I didn't, you know, forget the, the entire concept of the book. Right. Um, <laughs> but so much of it, almost every passage I read, it was like, this part sounds just like today. Oh yeah, they're you know, more separated like this. There is no past. It's, right. it's, it's we're right here with it. Yeah, uh, that's that same bars and I mean, I, I haven't seen much prostitution in Shaco recently, but I guess <laughs> no. it's a little more no, cover if it is yeah, there. But now the, back you know, then it was pretty out there and pretty blatant, and it's not sure. like you know girls walking down Jefferson Davis Turnpike, you know, looking for cars because back then I mean the, the automobile wasn't as prevalent as it is nowhere near prevalent as it is today. Um, and so you were depending on foot traffic, so you had to get noticed somehow. <laughs> right. Usually circulated by word of mouth. This is Maggie's place. You go here, Sophie. You go there, and uh, you know you get a little you know toot to drink or whatever, and go upstairs and have your way. And have but your I mean, even today, I mean, if you want to go really get, you know. Just go get really drunk, I and mean, that's where you're going to go, right? I and mean, that's the well, deal. depends. Yeah, I mean, like, it's uh, I think the fine merchants of Shaco would, would dispute sure. this claim now. Well, there's a couple but places. There's a couple there's, places there's a couple down in Shaco that, we know that, that that's, uh, 
And it's it's even dating back to the Civil War when when Shaka was also a huge den of iniquity. <laughs> People were always getting beaten up and arrested, and I mean, it just I don't. It's it, there's well, always been a place where that's existed. even before that. You're right. So that was like the slave the slave trade was well, centered yeah, the right slave there. Slave trade was centered right so there. It's, like, it's always and it's the oldest. I mean, right. it's the cradle of Richmond. So. You so know, the rapture the cradle, don't be there. Like that's like. <laughs> well, maybe that's the safest place. Right. It's resisted all other. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, Gaston was, I guess, the, the sure. big, you know, punishment quasi. Certainly punished a lot of people and businesses, uh, and and I think is is still Shaco uh, hasn't fully recovered no, from, from that event. Absolutely not. Um, and uh, although it's come a great distance, but. But in the, the car issue of it is actually pretty interesting because mm-hmm. I know in the book, you, t- you know, he he rallies like gets really upset about how. You know, because I guess first of all they've annexed this huge section, which it's like 400 times larger than the city was before in this time period, right? I think. Well, I think I remember seeing that, or, or something like that. Not 400 times. I mean, they annexed the, the Fairmount section, is what, and he was talking about the streetcars going out there, and also the, how the city hasn't been able to run, you, you know, the gas lines and the sidewalks out there. And the near West End was the same way. Sure. Uh, all of that, the Lee District out there, and what we now the Museum District behind what was then the old Soldiers Home. Um, was just a muddy mess. Yeah, and the city was growing faster than it had uh, the ability to keep up with maintenance. Uh, they weren't able to lay the sidewalks fast enough or bring in the the sewer lines. And uh, so, but like, are we talking about like just grass, and then there's just you know like a, a path basically that, that people have walked basically. Yeah, and yeah particularly on, West like, Main Street. I mean, there's a passage in here that um, talks about how uh, a woman has written to the idea, complaining about how muddy the streets are. And that she doesn't feel safe, right. and uh, she, you know, and so, and the you know, it's either muddy, it's muddy in the in the winter, and dusty in summer, and and uh, and Richmond, Richmond was just a very dirty, messy place. And right. You had a fertilizer plant, uh, the Virginia Carolina Company downtown, that was pumping out <laughs> this, the odor. Uh, tobacco companies uh, with the sweet scent of tobacco. There's also because there were so many horses. Uh, there was offal, uh, there was horse manure all up and down the streets right. uh, that would sit there and bake in the sun until it was picked up uh, by the city uh, or by other enterprising individuals. Um, uh, and so, and there, it was, and there were trains, and there were six stations, and so there were constant, it was constant freight trains moving in and out of the city, and passengers as well. And so it was. It was a busy place, but it was a loud and noisy, um, smelly sure. <laughs> place. And also, um, the percentage of people with indoor plumbing was significantly less than it is today. And for that, to that extent, in 1909, uh, the uh, the bathhouses opened up in Chaco for men and women. So particularly in that part of town, the East End, Church Hill, and and uh, Fairmount, and other places nearby, which were mostly wor- many working class people. Um, who didn't have indoor plumbing? Right. They could avail themselves of of uh, the bathing facilities there. It's hard to believe that Richmond had bathhouses, but yeah. at one point we had three. So, so but, and they're those people without plumbing. They're going like outhouses, or they're going chamber pots. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the they go to the privy out back. Okay. Or in pots too. I mean, and then that's getting up. dumped in the street as well. And that's getting dumped in the street like, or dumped somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not. <laughs> the river not was uh, it was basically used as an industrial sewer, but at the same time, you also had cruise ships, uh, little right. uh, packet packet liners running up and down uh, between uh, Richmond uh, and uh, Portsmouth and Baltimore, and taking moonlight cruises down the Drury's Bluff. 
Um, and and there the Virginia um, the yacht at the boating club they would have a regatta uh, down yeah. there as well. So people were using it, but my goodness! And there's pictures of people swimming in it. Um, and and uh, but it was extremely. I mean, compared to now, I think it was probably quite more polluted. Right. Uh, and um, the the reclamation work that's been done in the last thirty years. Yeah. Uh, thirty forty years is is a pretty amazing, and we're feeling the boon of that in this in, in Richmond right now. Absolutely. But but back in uh, the early part of the century, it really. And, and this is what most cities in the United States were doing with the rivers. The rivers supplied the raw energy power for so many of the factories along those riverfronts. And the James is the reason why Richmond is here. Right, right. Um, and the fact, too, that we actually, just before the t time period of this book, actually had a shipbuilding industry. Right. Uh, down where Chapel Island's a great mm -hmm. shiplock park is, that was the Trig Naval Yards. Yeah. Which was in business just for a few years, around 1895 to 1901. And they're going uh, for the Spanish-American War, exactly. right? Like they were Grand actually Island. one of the first uh, places to build uh, destroyers for the United States Navy, torpedo destroyers. So, um, the, um, but you know, the, the company went belly up. Um, uh, Mr. Trigg actually uh, had a couple strokes trying, out of the stress, I think, of trying to keep the company going. And they built destroyers. They built uh, a couple of uh, private ships, uh, a boat uh, that went up the Amazon for mission with missionaries. Oh, wow. Um, um, and uh, so that was that was one of the uh, attempts uh, by Richmond um, in the early part of the, at that crucial turn of the century period to get into the forefront. They were looking just as they are now to get that thing, yeah, that yeah. thing that's going to make us great. Sure. And so there was a huge amount of civic boosterism uh, in the early part of the 20th century, and I get into some of that in Richmond and Racktown. Yeah, that same stuff. I was reading this passage as well, and I was like, man, this is like, <laughs> we're going to feel like this is, you know, because just recently, like the, maybe the last five or ten years, I feel like it, there's this, this pride, you know, especially with the RVA thing. Oh, yeah, Suddenly yeah, right. are like, yeah, yeah, we're so close. Right. Which... Uh, I'm going to say we are, just because... <laughs> I've been doing it all my life. Right. we got so much potential. Potential means you haven't done anything right. yet. But <laughs> the only alternative is, is so sad. And so I'm just going to assume that we're there. But no, I think there there. is a sense of that. And I think uh, uh, the media culture has helped fan that right. a great deal, which uh, existed in, in, in the Richmond and Ragtime, but in a far less pervasive way, because... Um, you just you, these things, these computers that we have, and the handheld devices we have, um, are able to spread the news faster and farther. Um, but Richmond was very good at promoting itself and had its city of commerce uh, uh, people uh, out scouting for prospects to bring automotive makers here with the Klein uh, Klein car. Um, again, we had a brief uh, flirtation with shipbuilding. Um, and there were other, I mean, it was a place, too, where things got made mm -hmm. and built. Everything from, uh, from barrels for shipping at the Richmond Cedar Works, shoes right across the street from this mm -hmm. office is the building that housed the Putney Shoe Works, right. Putney Shoe Factory, makers of the Battle Axe Boot. Uh, yes. <laughs> and the abattoirs of Scott's Edition were right over there, so, you know, I went from, uh, from the mood to the shoe to you. Uh, right. And... Uh, as unsavory as we may feel that is, it, it came from somewhere. So the the raw material came from somewhere. So um, and so, wait, so I, is that or is that not named after Winfield Scott? I've yes, it's it named is. after Winfield. Well, it's Winfield Scott owned the land, but he never lived there. Okay, and so descendants ended up owning it. 
And wow. so when it was auction, auction, when it was annexed into the city, it became known as, and they called them additions in those days. Sure, it sure. was Scott's addition. So, yeah, it, the, the, uh, the Mayo family married into the Scott family, and their house was called the Hermitage. And it was a rather rambling affair that had been added on to over many years. It sits right about where the Science, Muse uh, the Science Museum is today, or okay. the Broad Street Station. So, and, and hence the name of Hermitage Road. And they own this huge spread over here. Um, and then the the relatives divided it up, and that's how it became Scott's Edition. And so the additions, you know, the, the annexation, I think it's always it's, it's kind of you know t to me, like if the city right now is like I'm gonna we're gonna start annexing. I mean that would just be insane. Well, we so, can't. Right, right. there was a moratorium against it, thanks to the it's just the idea of, of it. Yeah. Whether it's legal or not, it just seems like such an insane idea. And and that at this time, right, we're still part of Henrico. No. Right, no. Well, no. I mean, not Richmond. No. Okay. Well, Richmond when, is a, when did that happen? When did they split? Is that a long time? Well, that's a long off? time. That's you know, that's colonial. I mean, that Richmond formed, declared itself as a city, uh, was declared a city in the 18th century. Uh, I think 1787. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, it was 1787. But wasn't it still a city within the county? No, it was an it was an independent. I mean, certainly, you know, Henrico had its own courthouse in what became Richmond. It's, you can go right. down there and look at it now on Twenty Second and Main. That's the old yeah. Henrico County Courthouse, um, and, and the city just kind of grew up around it um, while Henrico still kept its courthouse there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was surrounded by Henrico County. They kept annexing. There was a three judge court, and if Richmond could prove it was economic, uh, if they the economic need, if they could prove it to the judges. Then they voted for you to annex. But see, like, why would that be okay with any? You know, why because, would Henrico just say, "Well, wait, we want some of that." Like, why well, are you the taking city away from us? For it. The city gave the money. But I mean, it just doesn't. But seem it, like it makes sense, less, right? and it's less the county has to deal with. So they just want to be rural. They're like, "We're just, we're, we're fine with this. We're like, fine. We're fine." And if you and, that, and that's pretty much the way it goes until the county, particularly Henrico, starts developing its own sense of itself and. Shortly after, around about the time of the Second World War, and that's when uh, they annex, or the city annexes, uh, I think it's nine miles of Chesterfield County. That's where uh, Deepwater Highway Parkway, basically. Well, no, that's where the, um, that's later. Um, but uh, that's where the DuPont plant is, and, and okay. um, down there were Deepwater Terminal. That's, and they did it for the war. I think it was in 1942, it was annexed. And then you've got an annexation that basically brought in West Hampton, where University of Richmond is. Right. Um, and that was where you start seeing support for that kind of thing, eroding. So then you get into the 60s, there's this attempt by Richmond at consolidation uh, with Henrico County. Uh, Chesterfield completely refused to even talk to the city about it. Um, that failed two public referendums for various complicated reasons, race and class being two of them. Um, and uh, going in the opposite directions. Um, and so then that's when uh, Richmond chose to use the nuclear option, which was annexation, and took over the 23 square miles of Chesterfield County. And I remember growing up, um, coming up um, to, to up Broad Rock Road, and you would see where the, they had put the Welcome to Richmond sign, and people had chopped it down. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> People had chopped it down. Basically, it was completely. It's. 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 I've written about it many times. Um, 
it is basically it was uh, it was a uh, the premise was wrong. It was a racially motivated premise that we're going to bring in white people to dilute the black vote. Right. Well, it exploded like a cartoon blunderbuss in the face of Richmond. Right. Um, and Chesterfield promptly decided to allow the building of Cloverleaf Mall right across <laughs> the street, basically, and and the the whites who could fled. Yeah. And um, so you have this situation and that we're still dealing with the, you know it's like the Beatles and a boy you're going to carry that weight for a long time um, which goes back far more far far away from farther back than the 1970 but it's like the echoes from a huge explosion that keep going and going and going we feel it in our daily lives was that the, uh, the the whites and the middle class blacks it should be said who didn't want to grow up um, didn't want their kids growing to the schools that weren't up to snuff, and they wanted to. They wanted more land, and they wanted to get out of these close close confines. They moved to the suburbs too. Sure. So what's left are the people who can't leave. Right. <laughs> you know, it's uh, or who choose not to because sure. it's their home. Uh, and so, but uh, a great deal of the leadership class that we could have drawn from left, and um, so. Now the city is in this kind of strange position where we're at the we're we're at the hub of the wheel and the the immediate um, outer first tier of burbs are having problems. Sure. Um, and so and these are in the counties. That's right. the thing. If we had annexation now, there's probably nothing we would want. Right. <laughs> I stop being extremely uncharitable. Take that, to our Take yeah, that, Chesterfield. I mean, yeah, I mean, unless you could like, but it's a good strategy, though. You don't <laughs> want to take the land, just like drop a bunch of garbage right next to it. Well, it didn't drop yeah. it; it just yeah. sort of happened. Uh, and and we shouldn't say it's garbage, but I mean, it's 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 interesting how that's developed. Sure, um, it, it's it's uh, it's a a classic case where you know you just you, you're not if you're not. If you don't have any vision, um, you're going to perish. Sure. And, and uh, so this whole effort to avoid things that we don't, what we find unpleasant as a community, um, is, is caused this whole century of stress and dynamism uh, that has, has has largely not been healthy. Sure. <laughs> for the city or the region, um, and it's the seeds of it are right there in Richmond and Ragtime. Where, where right. Well, and so at that time, you know. Just after the turn of the century, people are coming into the city, right? Yes. I mean, that's yeah. a, it's a, it's the opposite situation right. where people are. It's a place of opportunity, right? Op economic, yeah. you know, jobs, stuff like that, right? Um, which you know, I guess the counties now have, you know, I guess like Capital One stuff are out in the counties, but I mean, the uh, I mean that must have been crazy as well to go from like living on a beautiful farm somewhere mm -hmm. where you're like I can't get a job and then living in the like. Shocking. Kind of crap holes, you know, that you were talking about earlier. Like, well, they weren't always crap holes, but, I mean, um, but they were... Just the, you know, the dirty and how, you know... Yeah. The, and I imagine there's just smoke everywhere. Cause Smoking, it, you know, yeah. Um, you know, I don't know, just like... It's not quite Victorian London, but... Right. But, but there were, I mean, right along the river, you still had Treadiger Ironworks, um, and there were all sorts of factories lining right below Gambles Hill, which is where the Ethel Corporation is now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and again, you had train yards everywhere. So it, it was um, it was gritty, right? Which aren't uh, pretty places. It wasn't either. quite Deadwood, but yeah, you know, it, it was it was pretty gritty at times in certain sections of town for sure. Wow, yeah, and and I guess you you're also bring up you know bring building uh, John Marshall Hood, uh, 
high school. Oh yeah, there, right that, during that time. Yeah, right. Um, and are there blacks high schools? No, no, no. No. Well, no, no yeah, yeah, there are, but not, um, but not John Marshall. Right, they're not in there. But I mean, they no. have alternatives. Yeah. To go well, to? yeah. Well, they do. They have to have like high schools. So, okay. Um, um, I mean, they don't have to. I mean, they were, they were, <laughs> no, they were supposed to desegregate well before they did as well. So, well, no, I mean, well, well, they had to be educated somehow. Well, you had Richmond Normal, um, and then Maggie Walker actually uh, was one as, as, a, as a young woman. She led the first boycott of of uh, graduation ceremonies because she wanted to have the you know they should they they used to cram them into a church, and she wanted to go to the Richmond Theater at the time. Uh, on Broad Street, uh, which was the well, the Empire Theater, basically, mm-hmm. um, and um, they wouldn't they were they wouldn't allow it at first. <laughs> they didn't want her. They didn't want her. They they said the blacks would have to sit in the balcony, and Maggie didn't want to hear of it. So they had it in an auditorium at the high school, and there were police present. Right. And uh, but uh, they um, she was one of eight students who were looking at expulsion because they dis- they chose to speak out. Uh, against the the unfair graduation, the, the procedures of, of how it was run. So, and of course, then she grows up and she becomes Maggie sure. Walker, uh, the institution. But she was a, mo- a mother and a, and a wife as well. Right, an actual human being. An actual human being. The, uh, go to her house today. Yeah, and it's fantastic. And it I'm, really is. I'm hoping to get talk to somebody over there as well. Actually, yeah. um, the uh, but you know, you know, I guess not even just a harp on her, but it's, that's what it's like a lot of really interesting stuff when you're because. If you ask ninety percent of Richmonders right now, was who is Maggie Walker? She she most of them like because I know from doing the tours, she owned the first black-owned bank, which yeah. is you know not true. She's the right. first female that yes. found a bank, right? Um, and the first black female, right? Um, but it's like that one sentence. It's like it's great. I'm yeah. glad that you know that, right? But like, <laughs> but it's like whoa, like this person is like amazing. Yeah. Like this person is incredible. Yeah. Their life is so cool, and that's the one thing. That, like you know, which is great that she did that, but I mean, I don't know. It's an interesting thing too that Maggie Walker, because of the color line, um, she she was very she was wealthy. I mean, she could afford to buy Schwarzschild jewels and, and go to Tallheimer's, but she had to go at night. Oh wow! She had to make an appointment and arrangement to go. Wow! Uh, and here's a woman who could probably bought and sold some of these people. Sure. <laughs> or, sure. You know, whatever. I mean, not. I mean, they. I mean, she was. She was. She, she did quite well for her. To me, one of the tragic figures of, of Richmond and Ragtime is John Mitchell Jr. Yeah, absolutely. And John Mitchell Jr. who was actually on city council uh, in the 1880s um, and, and was a force to be reckoned with. I mean, he yeah. was a civil rights activist straight up, for, practically from jump. Definitely I mean, was, a, a thorn in folks' side as uh, well. Absolutely. And he had his own, you know, had his own newspaper. Uh, and in some cases, he was his own worst enemy because you know you just I I'm a, I'm actually astounded that he wasn't like Colehouse Walker in, in uh, the old Doc Rose ragtime you know with a gun in sure. the offices of the Planet shooting at the police uh, as they came for him. Uh, but this was Richmond, and we didn't do stuff like that. We <laughs> a little more gen, you know a little more genteel, or at least we thought we were. Um, but I think people respected him. I think he had a certain amount of respect because he was eloquent and he was a great dresser and he drove a Stanley Steamer car. Actually, he had it driven for him. And um, so he, uh, he represented the black bourgeoisie. He was a, actually he was an upper class man. So, but by 1910, 1911, when he wants to start his mechanic savings bank, right. he has to go to, to the city council and grovel 
to get permission to build it <laughs> because of the new Baltimore Acts, which basically was saying uh, that you couldn't have white whites owning property in black neighborhoods and you couldn't have white black people living in white neighborhoods. And, uh, and there were, these yeah. were clauses written in, um, in property agreements to that effect. So this caused a great deal of consternation, in particular in what was historically called Jackson Ward, which by then had been divided up into, I think, five separate wards. It, there was no Jackson Ward anymore. Its name had been taken away. Okay. But everybody who lived there still called it the right. Ward. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, legalistically, it had been gotten rid of by the white ruling class. And, uh, but, um, so John Mitchell Jr. was still a, a, a community presence there. Um, and uh, so... He still had power there. He still his words still meant something. But by this time in his life, and he's been at this a long while, we kind of see him kind of coasting. You know, he's he has realized that with the 1902 Constitution, in particular, which basically enshrined what we would call Jim Crow, uh, which basically deprived blacks and made it almost impossible. Right, for the New Virginia Constitution. You mean, right? New Virginia yeah. Constitution, which. Never went to referendum. Was just basically ordained, like set down by the General Assembly, as if, like, like every good thing is. Like you know, just like some kind of royal proclamation. And not only did it deprive, really make it nearly impossible for African Americans to vote, a number of poor whites. I think thirty percent of the eligible people to vote uh, could not in wow. the state of Virginia. So. Um, it was uh, it was an extraordinary force that was moving through the Commonwealth at that time, and John Mitchell saw this happening, and he realized that nothing that he must have felt at some point. I mean, I just I I, I, I don't I, it, it, I know that it was very frustrating for him right. uh, to be lauded uh, outside of the city, um, to be recognized as being John Mitchell Jr., and he would come home. And he, he ended up leading a, a strike also um, slightly before this, um, in 19, uh, early, few years trolley earlier. Strike, right? A trolley, yeah, boycott, basically saying because of the Jim Crow regulations, well, blacks won't um, won't take them, won't walk. And this is years ahead of the Montgomery bus boycott. Right. 50 years ahead of the time. Um, and and he even after the boycott was over, and, and uh, eventually the traction company did go into receivership, Thereby is a long story, but he never took a Richmond streetcar after that. Wow. He either he didn't need to primarily he would drive or he would walk, and uh, so uh, he he just refused to take uh, the cars because they they wouldn't allow blacks to ride up front or wouldn't allow treat them accordingly. So right, he was a man of, of principle in that regard. And which is I remember there's a passage in there where there's like um, where they're talking about you're you're talking about how um, the because the you know the, the the parts that they had just acquired in the outskirts of this now the city yeah. were not being taken care of, so right. the, the trolley car would come in and it'd be filled with uh, black folks. Yeah, that was Aiden, Aiden talking about how yeah, and then the white people couldn't get on the trolley. Right, right. <laughs> which I thought was interesting. It's like yeah. a reverse type of like segregation where like well, what, what Aiden didn't understand was the reason why all those black folks were on the were on the streetcars because it didn't come as often into black neighborhoods as it did in the whites, and there weren't as many of them. Right. But he's not thinking, unfortunately, and and so he's complaining. He's basically he's complaining because he couldn't. His wife couldn't get home in time, right. like probably, and um, so he's complaining about that. But the problem was 
that just like every other aspect of city services, and, and, and by the way, we need to say that the streetcar system, so-called, and I call it a system in this book, but it's really kind of a misnomer to this extent that the streetcars were never owned by the city. In the very early right. days, uh, in 1888 or well, 1880 when, when Julian Sprague came here from the Connecticut Yankee, the, the, the Annapolis train Connecticut Yankee came to devise this thing that did not exist in the world in any great uh, way, um, they didn't know that it's city council or, or just to, hey, just go invent a new technology while you're That's at cool. it. That's yeah. Don't, don't worry. But about you're going to owe us money if you don't fulfill your contract, which in fact he did owe the money. But he ended up making him quite wealthy in the end. But um, the city made very early on decided they were not going to be involved with purchasing the cars or the maintenance or anything. All they would do was be involved in contracting the companies that ran the lines. So, they had no administrative oversight, no say on what was going on at all, and so you had competing lines, um, and, and it took them for a long time just to get the exchanges worked out so that you, you could buy on one line and then switch and ride on another. Right. Um, and, uh, and there were labor strikes and there were riots and uh, not massive like by Chicago standards or anything like or New York standards, but for rich, it was, people got... Killed yes. mostly just because of jitteriness and, and stupidity, sure. which is what leads to most killing. But um, and uh, so and this was just you know, four years prior to the beginning of this book. So uh, the the, the streetcars, while they provided an incredible service, uh, that uh, basically what they did was they alleviated um, the horses from having to haul people up and down these muddy streets because. Richmond at that time, up until the streetcars were developed, was a city, as you well know, of hills and ravines. Right. And it was difficult to negotiate them. Uh, just riding a bike up and down them can show you that. Sure. Uh, trying to hike up from Browns Island <laughs> will show you how steep those hills are. And um, it's, it's good cardio, though. And, yeah. uh, but it's difficult to get around. Sure. So the streetcars allowed people to get around the city with greater ease, and they were fairly efficient once they got the kinks worked out, um, and uh, and they were practical. So, um, but then nineteen about eighteen eighteen ninety five, you start seeing the first cars, and then by nineteen nine nineteen ten, we're having auto endurance contests right. from downtown all the way up in the, to North Carolina and back, and they're covered in the sports pages like horse races, sure. basically. Completely um, unregulated. Uh, yeah, well, there, there were, there were rules. Like, I mean, but like as far as like you're going to drive through a city, it's not like right. they're like, yo, we're going to put cones up and keep <laughs> no, them out and like have police and they and would stuff. cheer. People would turn out and cheer them and feed them and... Um, it was, it was it, it's hard for us now, I think, to conceive of just how crazy new this was. I mean, the only thing that I can really compare it to is seeing a Segway right. on the street. Sure. And how people gawk at them. Right, yeah. What are they doing on those things? I guess that's the closest we can get to how people reacted to automobiles. Right. Seeing them for the first time. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and trying to get their heads around the fact, oh, there's no horses run by itself. And they're sure. kicking up all this dust and they're going 20 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Or 15. And right. it's just, it seemed breakneck at yeah. the time. With and ease. With ease. Not bouncing. Well, never bouncing. There's, a, there's, well, there's plenty of car accidents occur because they're, they get, there's one guy I think fell asleep. I talk about him and he runs down a ditch and 
injured, people get thrown out and injured. This is during the North Carolina when they're going down to North Carolina on the big endurance that the newspaper sponsored primarily to demonstrate the terrible condition of Virginia's roads. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, we're still dealing with that. Yeah. Um, but it was one of the one of the drivers in, in the endurance race. I think it's nineteen. I think it's nineteen ten. Pointed out that you could tell immediately when you got to North Carolina because the roads improved. That's <laughs> so bad. The roads in Virginia were so bad that you could break your axle. And and um, but it's interesting how these people would drive in pouring rain because it's not like you're in an SUV. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You're and some of them didn't even have roofs. It right. was an open car. Right. So you're like slickered up, and it's pouring rain, summer rain in Richmond, trying to get here to sure. beat the clock, uh, to get to Broad Street. <laughs> so, um, so these people were like celebrated for, and one of the winners uh, was a uh, Miss Dunlop, who was a woman driver, and because she came in and won, her she wasn't counted. Um, as being a legitimate driver because she's a woman, even sure. though she she was also an artist. She actually ended up starting the Petersburg Area Art League. Right. Uh, and uh, so. Uh, well, then that's interesting too because we, you know we talked about you know the the black community, but I think a lot of folks today forget about how oh, how oppressed the the females were. We've seen madmen, and we've seen how in the mid '60s women were basically second class citizens. Um, just in trying to assert themselves. It even seems like on oh, Mad Men, it even seems like a like a cliched thing that's not real. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like yeah. when you see like a, a slavery movie or like something, you know, um, it just seems like, oh, that's so crazy. And you watch Mad Men and you're like, aha. You know Like not that I'm like, you know, but yeah. it just doesn't seem quite well, as serious. Well here those women are sixty years out from or right. from their grandmothers or mothers actually having fought and marched and gotten the vote and they're still, even though they have the vote, um, it's it's still trying to assert themselves as individuals and, 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 is or, and organizing to, uh, and that's why you see this burst of the feminist movement in the, in the 60s because, you know, we're just basically we're trying, we just want to be treated as, as individuals, sure. as, as be respected for what we are. Well, the suffragettes are like Pre suffragists, though now, suffragettes, suffragettes. Were, suffragettes, suffragettes were the British ones who, like, threw ink on the uh, prime minister and laid yeah, down in front of that. trains and stuff. Uh, but but the, the Americans were suffragists, suffragettes. basically. And there we have Adele Clark and Alan Glasgow um, and, and Lila Mead Valentine. Lila Mead Valentine was this short, tiny young woman um, with big, thick glasses. Who married very well and whose very loving, caring, indulgent uh, husband uh, didn't let her uh, agreed with her and let her go all over the state preaching uh, the word of, of, of suffragism, of, of, of getting women to vote. Yeah. And um, there, when William Howard Taft came here, he was actually approached by suffragists urging him to. Uh, and they were pulled away sure. <laughs> uh, because uh, they didn't want this. Uh, they, there's mention of it in the newspaper, but there's not a mention of who it is. Uh, and no one talks to the women. Had, but there's also an incredible photograph of all, they, they bring all the African-American businessmen and community leaders for Taft to talk to, or talk at, I should say. <laughs> and then there's a photograph of them all sitting or standing on the Capitol steps. Um, and... Um, it's a pretty amazing photograph. John Mitchell Jr. is there in his tuxedo and his top hat, and um, and uh, but the women, uh, <laughs> women didn't get any pictures. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. So, 
So this was still considered radical. This was, uh, yeah. you know, there are General Assembly people who simply did not, could not see or understand why women would want to vote. Right. Because if once you vote, then it means you want, want, want to get involved in politics. And there were some amazing, powerful, incredible women in Virginia in those days, as there are now. Um, the recent uh, uh, goings-on in, in the Capitol Square, a hundred years after this, uh, with the reproductive right fights, uh, going on um, with the women standing there, you know, staring down uh, police in riot gear. Sure, um, is is pretty astounding considering how far we've come, and yet here we are, right. doing it again. And I remember it's like, and I remember this for the first time I read it. It stuck with me that long. I, th I can't remember which one of them said it. But she said something about um, I don't totally butcher, but something about when. God took out man's rib. Oh, yeah. Remember, he That's took Anna out Clay Crenshaw, of, yes. Yeah, took out a piece of the spine as well. Exactly, yes. Anna Clay, speaking of the Jefferson Hotel, though, a packed house. Yeah. Uh, they brought her in, the Women's Suffrage, the Equal Suffrage League of Virginia, uh, that formed in November of 1909. Um, that was one of their big first public uh, announcements they had arrived, where they bring Anna Clay Crenshaw down to speak. And she does, and she just lays it on them uh, about how you really, you know, <laughs> one of my favorites, like, well, you wonder, can a Baptist and a Methodist live together, right. you know? I, well, they might argue, but they, they can live in the same place. Sure. Uh, and, you know, it sounds like it, it makes such perfect sense, right? But it was astounding, and it, it was, people had to be convinced. And in fact, even though it became, uh, you know, in 1920, it became law of the land, the General Assembly never officially accepted it until like I think 1955 oh wow is when they finally voted in to accept the nice <laughs> the, so like in that, suffrage, that time yeah, exactly like, even a little slightly earlier but yeah yeah, yeah. Like, yeah not, not, not much I mean, yeah that's like right, right 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 within a five year range there but uh, ten year range or five year range depending on when we start but um, yeah the Virginia General Assembly didn't get around to, to uh, accepting the, uh, the, the the federal law details <laughs> <laughs> didn't mean women could vote because there's, they most certainly did vote in Virginia, but but uh, but so that's interesting. I mean, to, the women get the vote, uh, then blacks are prevented from voting, uh, and, and there was a poll tax. I mean, you had to pay in advance, and you had to go through very. You know, there were it was up to localities in many cases what they how they wanted to run their uh, voting procedures. So sure. that meant any kind of whimsical way to prevent people from voting, they were allowed to do. Sure. And uh, so this really basically put the state uh, in the hands of a machine politics that basically hamstrung us or put shackles you know, we had one arm tied behind our back and chains on our legs as we went shambling uh, into the 20th century thinking we were so progressive and um, and and right right um, about what we were doing but this was going on throughout the South. Um, Richmond, actually, Virginia, with its 1902 constitution, was actually later than some of the southern states that did the same thing. Wow. And, and that, again, is the idea of going to the polls and having to pay someone to vote. It's just like, it's... Well, pay ahead of time. You would pay the poll tax. You would pay... Right, sure. But even they, then, it's just... And then when you get there, you have to recite the constitution or right, yeah. something like that. Recite the preamble or something like that. And that's, ask citizenship questions. It's one of those other things that you're like, I know that that exists. But then when you think about it, you're like, oh, that's just... And people went through that, and crazy. they fought against it. And we are, you know, their descendants, so many of us are. And, and uh, 
and we may not even know about it. We may have forgotten about it. And and uh, and there were plenty of people who just accepted it too, because people were busy. People were busy then. People are busy now. Right. The Constitution of 1902 passed. There was never a serious legal challenge sure. against it, because people just accepted it. Sure. I mean, there was the, you know people talk to speak today about apathy. But it was around then, too. That's why Aiden Yoder is out in the street screaming his bloody head off, sure. saying, don't you people see what's going on? Right. You see how crooked these people are? And people did, but they just said, well, you know, it's just the way it is. Yeah. It's the way it is. It's the epitaph, really. And we, we just talked a little bit when we were talking on Facebook about that, about how the, uh, you know, and it's, especially in Richmond, it's all civil war. Yeah. And then, but then generally in studying history, you know, in school and everything, there's you, you hop from these wars. And then between the wars, there's like, here's a couple people that did these things. Um, but, like, guess what? There's the stuff. Oh, sorry. Oh. You're doing an interview? Yes. Um, did you know the 48-hour film curtain was here? No, did I get their picture taken? Yeah. Oh, okay. I have to go look at that. <laughs> um... Uh, so yeah, so yeah, I don't know. I'm just saying with, why, why this, you know, the Civil War is everything for people here. Yes. And, and well, it's four years out of 400. It's four right. very dramatic years, but uh, people like, you know, I used to do National Park Service interpretation out at Fort Harrison National Battlefield Park and, and other places, and people like stuff that goes boom. I mean, right. they just do. Right. They like the drama. Things in Richmond, Richmond was also a dramatic place in those three years of 1909 to 1911, and okay. afterwards, certainly. But there's not that shooting going on. Sure. Of, there's no General Lee, there's no, you know, Grant. It's, 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 uh, but the, the thing is, you know, just because the war was won, then the peace became problematic, and so we end up with the Constitution of 1902, and Richmond divided racially, people being kicked out of their own neighborhood. Absolutely. because. Because of all of this horrendous mess going on uh, with the race class issues. And so I think people don't want to look at it. I don't think they're maybe they're not interested in it, but they just, it's painful. It is right. painful. Yeah, absolutely. It's just difficult to look at because our city did that right, to absolutely. its citizens. Uh, with the sense that they were operating within the full force uh, and confidence of the law, which they were. That was the law of the right. state. They could do that. It was the city ordinances that allowed them to do that. Sure. And men of good faith and standing voted for them. Right. So, um, <laughs> that, this, this, that these kinds of things occur shouldn't surprise us that they don't happen more often, perhaps. I think that's... That we're, that, you know, and, and, uh, and that, that there is a sense, too, that, that you know, what Aiden Yoder shows us is that vigilance is required. Right. Um, if you're if you're not watching them, who's watching them? Sure. And if you're not calling them out, they'll be able to do anything they want. And any point of fact, uh, when he called for a dramatic reduction of, of the city government, they appointed their own task force. And in one of these crazy things that happened in Richmond on occasion, they actually did something right. They they shrunk it all down to a nine member governing board. Right. About two years after, about a year after he left. <laughs> See, <laughs> say, screw you, thanks. Yoder. We're going to do it ourselves. Right. We didn't need you to tell us. Right, sure. There had been good government clubs and things of that nature before he even got here and, and then after and during. And and he was a champion of that. But they really, but the wheels grind exceedingly slow and exceedingly small in Richmond and particularly in that particular period of time. 
So they did, in fact, decide to reduce the city government, and then eventually became the city manager, and then that all went where it went, and then we're back to a charter that uh, that calls for a mayor elected at large. Sure. Well, and the uh, is that when the because there was no mayor before that, right? No, there was a mayor. There, and was he elected like, uh, before they yes, went back yeah, down? He was. A, he was. So he was the popular elected, elected mayor, and then they went down to the to the uh, nine man, and they, they were, might, yeah. and they and they elected the, a, more, a member of that nine man board to be the mayor. That particular board, I still think they had a mayor elected at okay. large. You may have stumped the band on this one. I'd have to look at my own book. That's all right. <laughs> I, I think that uh, that's terrible. Was, You're fact, still, fact checking yourself. That's awesome. <laughs> there was still. That's... I think they were still electing the mayor, but then they got rid. Right, so what happened was, yes, they were. In fact, they were still electing their mayor because uh, then they went to the council, and then the, they had Fulmer Bright, who was a mayor from uh, for 16 years. Uh, so that's the other thing. You could succeed yourself uh, as mayor. Okay. Um, in those days. And Fulmer Bright was a reactionary conservative who, in the middle of the Depression, when we would have been benef benefit to have this new age, new deal, or whatever, <laughs> instead we got a guy who had to get sued to add a public safety officer uh, to this, and then, you know, and to add firefighters, um, and who was incredibly argumentative to the press, and yet he kept getting elected because he preserved the status quo. Right. He served the business interests. Um, and he kept the lid on everything. Um, and so, um, um, for 16, and that's what caused the move eventually to the council manager form of government. Okay. Because of, of his just egregious leadership. Um, and, and that's why we hobbled into the 20th century with that system. Because it was thought to be more efficient. It was thought to prevent uh, corruption. Sure. Um, and it perhaps... Maybe it did. We certainly had our run of really questionable city managers, um, and and questionable council people. Right. I was going to say because uh, I've only been here for like fifteen years. I don't really remember the, the city manager getting in trouble, but everyone around him. Yeah. It seemed well, like at least he was some, a. Well, you know, it's just a difficult position to be in. You're going to take hits. It's a political position, no matter right. what. But you're hired. Theoretically, you're supposed to be a city administrator who's professionally trained. Um, and and so this is to prevent corruptions, prevent um, good old boy politics. Right. Um, and uh, it worked sometimes. Sometimes it didn't work very well. And you had a weak mayor. I mean, throughout the, from really from 1949 on, you had um, a, uh, a an appointed mayor. Right. So thanks to Fulmer Bright. So uh, when the charter got redone, then we have this mayor elected large. And we have our present situation. Right. Next thing you know, <laughs> the, the school board's kicked out of the uh, city hall, and then yeah, I have my own views of this whole yeah. situation. Uh, I won't speak yeah. right now. And, but <laughs> and I guess that's. I mean, we we've been. I, mean, I feel like we could probably talk all day. So before we begin to trash the entirety of uh, <laughs> of the uh, the current political system, yeah. Um, I mean, you gotta. Anything else on it? You like any close? I don't know. I'm gonna end, just end right there if you like, or you want. Um, I want. Let me see here. I want. Oh, you know what? I want to read. Uh, I'll, here we go. If I could read this passage. Yeah. This is Aiden Yoder. This is the uh, Aiden Yoder in his older life. And, and his wife's name is Annie, and she is uh, and she's dying of, of tuberculosis. Aiden Yoder takes Annie to Colorado, where he writes for a mining correspondence school. The children are left with relatives back east. Her health worsens. 
and they return to Catalba. This is just outside of Roanoke. Annie dies there on May 7, 1915, in Yoder's arms, and he never recovers or ceases rewriting his poem to Annie in Heaven. He tries publishing in Charlottesville and then moves to Illinois, where he edits agricultural magazines and earns a reputation for being able to sell advertising like nobody else. His three sons live with various relatives. Yoder makes money, loses money, and steadfastly refuses to bend to authority. During a baseball game in Chicago, family tradition says he walked up to gangster Al Capone's personal box. Even if this didn't occur, it sounds like it could have or should have. The image of the teetotal anti-vice campaigner and socialist-turned-advertising salesman grasping the hand of the symbol of prohibition's failure shows the nation's Puritan libertine split like no other place. He has two other marriages, including one to an opera singer who left him for the stage. He starts a second family with a third, much younger German woman named Kati Siloff, whom he meets as a nurse at a doctor's office. They settle in California and raise four more children. He speaks with some frequency about his Richmond experience, though never in a painful way. His bitterness is directed toward Carter Glass, who, among other endeavors, is considered the architect of the Federal Reserve System. The 1947 formation of Israel brings Yoder back to religion. He dies in San Jose on November 14, 1958, 80 years old, 81 years old. On the cover of A Battered Idea, dated January 1, 1910, is a eulogy of sorts for Yoder's Richmond days. This is Jugini's elegant hand. He's, this is a woman that uh, he's writing to. The editor of this paper is a spunky fellow. I wish there were more like him. Along the cover's edge is a craggier handwriting. I will have to come back to Richmond, Virginia, Aiden A. Yoder, 90 years old. How did Eugenie, or perhaps a relative, know how to find Yoder in his old age? And why did this person still care about something so long ago? Perhaps Yoder was making one more sarcastic joke. He was not 90, but perhaps felt he should be. And he never came back to Richmond. Aiden Allen Yoder is buried in his native city of Lynchburg. Fantastic. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I appreciate it. You're yeah. welcome. Yeah. That is it, and I do appreciate it, Harry. Thank you very much. Thank you to everybody who is listening. Again, please let me know what you think. Uh, if you have comments, questions, tell me. Uh, if you want to suggest a guest, let me know about that as well. And uh, I'm on Facebook, History Replays Today, Twitter, at History Replays. Don't forget about HistoryReplaysToday.com and HistoryReplaysToday.org. That's too many places for you to let me know, um, for you not to let me know. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors um, all about this, and... Uh, Make it a great day.